Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is October 26, 2020. This is episode 2760 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Monday. We're going to do something we haven't done in a while and we generally do not do on Mondays. We're going to do a listener call show and I'm going to try to start doing more of these again. I'll, I'll be honest, I kind of faded on them for a while because I, I, I kind of just didn't really want to do them anymore. And I don't mean not anymore ever, I mean I just didn't want to do them for a while. If you remember for a while until recently, I I really didn't use uh, John Adams' music as well. And there was some songs in that last list that he put together that I really thought were terrible. Uh, but it was more than that. It was just, I just felt like doing my own music and I just felt for a while like not doing call-in shows. And when I feel like that, there's two things I can do. There's two things I can do, and one is what I used to do years ago, which is you shut up and you power through it anyway. And what I realized when I did that, that I was, first of all, I was ignoring the entire, we just did a show on content creation businesses and all the wonderful things about them. And one of the main things that we build a business like this for is for freedom. So I was like denying one of the true virtues that my business offers me, which is my my free choice as to what I do on any given day. More importantly, there will always be a day where I'm like, I don't want to do a show today. And it's okay once in a while to throw up a rewind or something out of the blue, just I just don't feel like it. Um, but in general, I, I need to get a show out every day. So there will always be some things that like maybe you don't want to do, but you, you need to do them anyway. But there's also things that, like the world did not end because I stopped doing call-in shows for a couple months. It didn't. The show didn't slow down, people didn't go away, and I feel better. And what I've realized is when I do listener calls when I don't feel like it, or I do listener feedback when I don't feel like it, or I do a guest appearance when I really don't want the guest or, or whatever, um, I don't do a good job. I'm not fair. I'm not reasonable. I've got um, one question today, the last one we're going to do, where I'm going to be very reasonable and very logical and very rebutting. And... I can see that it, had I done this call when it came in, which was a couple months ago, when I was in the mood that I was in, I might not have done so. I might not have been fair to the caller, who's wrong, but well-meaning. And so that would be why I haven't been doing this. I'm going to start doing them again. The other thing that happened is, and this is kind of an announcement for today about call-in shows, so we're skipping sponsors today so we can keep it uh, a brief because I have a little bit more lead into today's show. Um I, I ended up with some technological phone spammer who was hammering my 800 number, the Think line, 866-65-THINK, which don't dial that number now. I think I'm decommissioning that number forever. It's subject to this type of attack. Basically, this guy was using some sort of an auto dialer that spoofed DIDs, which is the, the call-in number from. So if it was all from the same number, same area code, whatever, you could just block it, right, and just deal with that. Um but I was getting, you know, sounds of toilets flushing and stuff like that and burning up like two minutes of 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 my my phone time. And that's billing me. And then also having to call through all that shit. And also that kind of just like threw, you know, gas on the fire of not wanting to do these. So I, I turned that number off back then. I did announce that it was off. I'm not sure I explained why. 
But with those two things together, I was like, oh, you can use SpeakPipe, and then I'll do So all these calls today come off of SpeakPipe. Going forward, you know, the 800 number that we use, the Think Line, is, is really kind of outdated technology. It, it really is. It's outdated technology. There's, there's, there's a, a time and place for technology, and making a phone call in 2020 to record a call for the show is, is unnecessary. It costs me money, and it, it doesn't really do a lot for me. So I'm going 100% to the speak pipe now. In all the, the listener call shows going forward, there'll be a link there. If you go to the survivalpodcast.com, you can find the speak pipe. If you can't find it, all you have to do is click on contact at the survivalpodcast.com, and right on that page, uh, you can't miss it. You will see uh, the speak pipe. And if you're on your mobile device, like your phone, like that you would use to make this call, all you have to do is hit a button and record and you, you enter your email address if you want to and your name uh, so I know who it's coming from, and then you record your call. And then I can't miss it, I can't lose it, it can't go anywhere. I do want to say something, though. I had a couple calls today. One is actually going to be on the air, and one isn't because it didn't fit that way. There were more of personal contact calls, like they, you want something from me. Even though I'm going to go back to using this a lot more and doing at least one call-in show a week now for throughout the rest of this year, definitely. And these are all, all – that was the other thing too, man. I was getting some calls that were just like, man, I really can't help you. Every one of these calls was fantastic. Maybe I just needed a break. I don't know. Um, but if you like want information from me or you want to ask me a question that's more of a you know, Bill to Jack question and Jack's going to answer Bill, this is not the way to do it. This is not the way to do it because I may not hear it for a month. Even if I'm regularly using it, I have a backlog to work through now. I don't listen to these as they come in. I never have. The other thing that you, this is unrelated but related, I answered somebody with a, a question like this today with a DM off Twitter. I barely use Twitter anymore. I've, I've gone to Facebook and MeWe as my main social media outlets, but even when I did, that's the kind of thing I often do not see. If you want to get in touch with me directly for the show or otherwise, Email me. That I will see. If you put TSPC, like it's a word, in the subject line, even if I miss it initially, within a couple days, I'll go into the spam box and filter it all out, and I'll see it. That's the way to get in touch with me for personal issues. All right. So let's begin by telling you what we're going to be talking about today, because we have a pretty varied group of calls today. We're talking about investing, holding, trading, and bartering with gold and silver. This is actually two questions put into one. Uh, I'll play both callers back to back and I'll give you an answer. And the one is the question he's asking is not the question he thinks he's asking. It'll make sense when I do it. Uh, uses for goose, goosefoot and various varieties thereof. This is one of those situations where it's better to be specific with what you're actually asking me because goosefoot is like saying um, brassia in a way. Like, you know, if, if I say brassias, uh, okay, well, which ones? Right? Which ones? If you don't know Parasios, you can look it up. But anyway, it'll make sense when I read that one, too. Um, call on government benefits like UBI and how they can be used to control behaviors like vaccine compliance and how it's already being done or at least threatened to be done in Australia. And I have an interesting question for some politicians about vaccines, one that nobody's asked. I haven't seen anybody say it anywhere. And when I say it, you'll be like, yeah, what about that anyway? Um, I don't expect an answer, by the way, but it's a good one to ask for our purposes. Uh, next, more on controlling your content 
platforms, business development, etc., tying into the question I answered on Friday and the show I did on Thursday last week on content creation business. But this is from a call that's actually a couple months old, uh, related to a video that I did like two and a half years ago. It's an interesting call and an interesting situation, and we'll talk about that. Uh, and then the economics and logistics of home dehydrating versus home freeze-drying, the difference between dehydration and freeze-drying, and, and, and why one might be better from a technology standpoint, but, but it's probably not the best solution for the majority of people in question. Uh, and next up today, um, the good and bad of turning an outbuilding into a, a quote-unquote grow room And then I have this, this, this final call that I'm, I'm talking about today that um, I, I think is really an interesting call to its point, uh, to my point, which it argues against without actually arguing my point, learning a name of a fallacy that's used all the time, in this case not intentionally, and a way to think about things from a logical standpoint. All of that and more, but let's start out with our quote of the day. Since we're going to finish up with fallacy, I thought, why don't I check for quotes by great minds about fallacy? So I typed in fallacy quotes, and one of the first ones I saw was by a dude, maybe you've heard of him before, Ernest Hemingway. God, I should, you know, I've done a Ben Franklin show. Probably need to do another one of those. I could probably do a couple, three of those uh, and not run out of stuff to talk about with Ben Franklin. But Ernest Hemingway is another cat that, like, it wouldn't be what you would expect on the Survival Podcast. We should probably do a day where we talk about Ernest Hemingway, like life life lessons from Hemingway. Yeah, we're going to do that. I don't know when, but we're going to do that. Um, but of fallacies, Ernest once said, actually wrote, as you might imagine, no, that is the great fallacy. The wisdom of old men, they do not grow wise. They grow careful. That's interesting. And I, I think this is one of those ones where you could argue against it, that we do grow wiser as we age in general. And the reason that we become more careful is because we become more wise. It can be both. It could be both, but what does the preponderance for the average say? I think, I think uh, Hemingway is right here in general. That as we get older, we, be, we do become more careful. We do become more cautious. We wait a little lo bit longer before we act. And whether that is through the acquisition of knowledge or the application of wisdom, I guess, is debatable. But sometimes I don't think it has anything to do with that. And we can apparently become more wise even if we don't. Either we're using a greater expression of our wisdom or patience is compensating for our stupidity. Because what I've noticed as people age, and I really hope it doesn't happen to me, but I imagine it certainly could, I think maybe being aware of it and cautious of it, ironically, may be more likely to prevent it than, than not. And that is that they become careful to the exclusion of Things that make sense. Here's an example. My father-in-law, a few years after his, his wife of many, many, many decades passed away, uh, was lucky enough to find someone to spend his time with, a really wonderful woman. She's fantastic. one of my favorite people I've ever known. Unfortunately, both of them have passed at this point, but it 
by age makes sense. But it was, this was years and years ago, long before iPhones, right? From flip phones were in vogue. And we were all over at our house, and she was visiting along with Dorothy's father. And my son, we had just gotten him his first cell phone. So his phone rings, and it rings with some sort of, you know, at the time would have been considered an unusual ring, you know, because pretty much everybody's phone had the same ring or two or three at the time. And, uh, but, you know, they had just kind of really introduced where you had a lot of choices to your ringtones. So she's like, well, how, 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 how does your phone do that? And this wasn't like a song or something, it was just a different ringtone. And uh, he says, oh, you can just change your ringtone. If you want, I can do it for you on your phone. And she goes, oh, you better not. Like something bad was going to happen. And that's always been curious to me. There's a difference between being careful and being, illo illo you know, being illogically cautious. And I think as we grow older, we need to be mindful of that. So that we gain, we gain the value of using greater care and patience. And we don't lose the things that make us unique as individuals willing to try things and risk things. They call it being set in your ways. If you're set in your ways because you've used this thing and you know it works, that's one thing. But if you're set in your ways because you fear the alternative for any reason that's not logical, that could be a real mistake and hence its own fallacy. With that, let's go ahead and dig on into this and start out with our first call today. This this is going to again be two calls. They seem different, but they're really asking the same real intrinsic question. Jack, with silver prices going up uh, to twenty nine dollars right now an ounce, how much higher do you think it would go? And at what point would you start selling some to take some profits? Hi, Jack. Matt calling in about investing in gold. I'm curious about owning physical gold versus certificates, futures contracts, stocks, etc. Any advice on that would be great to hear. Thank you. Bye. Okay, so on the first question, um, you know, it'd be really easy now to say, oh, 29 bucks is about the top because this question's about two months old, and I think silver's trading for around $24 an ounce right now. Um, On the second question, it's actually closer to the mark of what the first question really is. In other words, how do we decide what we hold as far as silver and gold, in what form, for how long, and when do we say, hey, I want to take some profits, and how does that affect the form? So when we look at silver and gold to simplify things today there's there's more forms and derivatives than I'm going to give you but I want to give you a few forms of silver and gold that are like cover 99% of of things there is physical metal that you can touch okay there is physical metal somewhere apart from you that you directly control this piece of silver or gold and there is the paper control of silver and gold through various paper instruments, the most common of which would be an ETF or exchange-traded fund. For instance, SLV is probably the best-known exchange-traded fund of silver. Uh, there are other paper instruments to control metal where you're controlling a vast piece of a pool uh, versus controlling a very specific, i.e., somebody has this in a vault for you. 
somewhere else, and, and you, it's your silver. Like yours, you could go there and say, "This is my bar." Whereas most paper instruments, what you're actually holding is there's a giant pool of metal somewhere, maybe, or a derivative thereof that you are part of a group of people holding. Okay, so we got paper, we got third-party held metal, and we have metal we hold ourselves. The one in the middle, metal someone else holds for you, I think is the stupidest thing that you can do, and you should never do it, and it doesn't make any sense. If you own the metal, possess the metal. I do not consider third-party held for you, though, to be like a safe deposit box. If you have the key, and you can go there and physically pick it up and walk away with it, regardless of where the locker is, I consider it yours. Okay? Um, so we're going to throw the middle out. Now, let's, let's break this down into what we do with these two forms. Metal that you hold, whether it's silver, gold, platinum, palladium, whatever. Silver, rounds, coins, bars, currency that is made up of 90% or greater, like pre-64, coinage, etc. Okay, to me, this is long-term hold metal. It is designed as a hedge against inflation in the worst of times where it can be directly used for barter. It is designed so that it can be simply, I'm getting older, I probably got a few years left at, at best, I want my son to have his part of his inheritance now, I don't want him to pay any taxes on it, and if I give it to him before I'm dead, there's all kinds of crap we have to do, and I just want to take and hand directly to my son or my grandson some level of my wealth that I've held for my whole life, and I don't want it to be anybody's business but ours. Here's a box of coins. That's one way that that would be divested of. That gives you an idea of my timeline on this. Another way would be, let's say the price of silver is up really high, and you're thinking, you know what, I have a great amount of holdings in silver, and this would be a good time to maximize that holding because silver's up to $35, bucks and, and, and most of the stuff I have like $14 bucks in. If you go sell it, there's some loopholes, but they're not very big, where you cannot pay taxes, especially with silver eagles. Okay? But in general, you're creating a transaction if you go sell it at like a coin shop or something. But if you have somebody doing some work for you, and they're willing to take silver for payment on some of the work, or gold for payment on some of the work, or for product exchange, and you wanted to vest yourself with some of this, would be a great time to do it because it's elevated in price and you're going to get more for it. If you decide you want to get rid of some of it. The other way that I see this as being valuable is your whole life has started to fall apart and unravel. You've eaten through your savings. You don't want to start raiding the 401k plan or whatever at this point. You need 400 bucks to get through this week so that you can hopefully get your shit together and move on with life. So you take $400 worth of silver or gold, you go down to the pawn shop, you sell it, you get money. That makes, to me, it's like it's always there and liquid that way if you need it. But it is the least effective trading vehicle there is. In other words, if you're only in it for profit so that you can trade it, sell it and buy it back, sell it and buy it back, physical metal sucks. Okay? That was just a paper. If you are the type of person that says, hey, look, I'm no dummy. When I see silver at 12 bucks, I know it's not going to stay there. And I have a pretty good stockpile of, you know, like that 5% Jack says of my net wealth in, in physical metal. I don't really need a bunch of it right now. In fact, I feel like I've got enough of that. I don't even care what Jack says anymore. If, if my net wealth keeps going up, I'm not going to chase it forever. 
I'm just I've, I've got enough of this this heavy metal that, that that I have to hide and take care of, and I don't want any more. Okay, but I I do understand that 12 bucks for silver is stupid, and hence I think this is an opportunity to make money. This is where ETFs come in, and then you, your only decision at that point is, do I want to do this in a a taxable or non-taxable trade, and do I have a choice? So if I have significant reserves inside an IRA, uh, for instance, and I think that, okay, well, this, this particular security has made me enough money right now. Maybe I'm going to sell some of it, harvest that profit, and buy silver while it's low. Then I'm going to use an ETF for that. Now, what about physical metal in an IRA? This is stupid. Don't do it. I'll, that's it. That's my whole answer. This is stupid. Don't do it. And, and here's why. We just started out with silver or gold being the most anonymous form of physical wealth you can hold. The most publicly disclosed thing you can have is a tax-deferred account like an like a, like a IRA. You have nothing that could scream more to government that here is my shit than that. So you've destroyed the anonymity so there is no point in the physical... The, 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 the trade-off of physical metal is it's physical metal. It's more complicated and more expensive to move and transact with than it is to use a paper instrument represented by silver or gold. But Jack, I think silver's way underpriced. And I have lots of money in my, my IRA, but I don't have lots of money that's free and clear outside of my IRA to buy physical metal with. Then buy an ETF. But when the zombies come in March, then it won't matter. Then it won't matter. Okay? You're talking about the one-off, one-in-a-million chance that the whole global economic system is going to shut down. That's what physical metal is for, and it should not be physical metal in your IRA if that's your motivation. It doesn't belong in an IRA. Because when that shit happens, I don't care if it's physical metal. It's still wealth that you have that the government knows about, and they will tax all wealth in that situation. So that doesn't go there. Additionally, If you're sitting in IRAs, right, so you're sitting on silver and it's in metal form and you want to trade it, there's a loss incurred relative to the trade ease and low cost uh, commission on trading a paper instrument. So when you're sitting in your IRA and silver, you bought silver at like 14 bucks and silver has gone up to like $35, and you don't believe the end of the world is nine, you don't believe it's going to keep going up, and by the way, when you're in a recession, there's limits on how much a commodity like silver can go up. So you're like, okay, this is like more than double my profits. And if I sell it, since it's in an IRA, I don't pay any tax on it. So I'm going to take my profits, and even if it only drops down to like, even if I have a plan like, oh, I don't want to be completely divested. So if it drops down to 28 bucks, I'm going to buy it back then. You, you're, you're going to want to do that. If you've, you know, signed up with Lear Capital for their online bullshit thing, scam thing that says it's really your metal. Like that, it doesn't work that way. It's more expensive to trade it and therefore more of your profits are lost. And the entire purpose of putting it in a tax deferred annuity or a tax exempt annuity, depending on what kind of IRA you have, and it should be Roth or you're wrong then all of that has just been damaged for no reason. So you've now made the, the wealth exposed for no good reason. Does that all make sense? So physical metal 
We never make it public that we have it. And anything that's going to be public and need to be traded, we go with an ETF or similar paper instrument. And I know people will scream and yell that that's wrong, but you will never come up, and I promise you, I challenge you, to come up with a logical argument against it that will actually make sense if further analyzed. Because all the reasons you'll tell me not to invest in paper silver or paper gold, all right, will negate putting it in one of these instruments, like an IRA. And if it's not going to be in an IRA, it's better off in a box in a safe in, in the concrete foundation of your house. It's very simple. It's only The only reason it's even complicated is because companies like Lear Capital look at this and go, there are hundreds of billions and trillions of dollars in retirement accounts. We'd like some of that money, so we'll come up with this idea that you can... Yeah, that's why. That's the, and if they didn't put that out there, you would never have thought that was a good idea. Anyway, let's move on. Next up, we have a question on a plant family. Asked as though it's a plant in individual stance. Here we go. Hey, Jack, this is Corey calling from central Pennsylvania. Uh, first off, wanted to say thank you for having such a great show and keeping those of us that are locked indoors at, at home through this, I shouldn't say locked in, but stuck at home through the pandemic. I uh, found your show, stumbled upon it a couple months ago, and I'm so glad I did. It's been amazing. So I am a uh, avid listener every single day, and it helps me keep keep moving through the day and uh, hits every point that I, I love between uh, survivalism, gardening, um, firearms, and, and uh, government issues. So, again, thank you very much. I'm truly appreciative of everything you do. i got a question for you. Hopefully you can uh, – might have some different ideas. I'm a big uh, user of Goosefoot and always grow a lot of it every year. And what I've always done with it between, uh, between using it as a uh, – green just to steam or uh just pan fry up and then also using the seed uh, at the end of the year didn't know if you had any other ways to use it uh, any other suggestions between you know eating it fresh freezing it i've tried drying it and, and used it in soups as well as the uh the seeds i use for about darn near everything um uh, didn't know if you had any other creative uses for it so i uh, appreciate anything you might be able to uh, suggest if you do and hope, hopefully hear something on the show. If not, totally understand too. So again, thanks for everything and, uh, have a good one. Well, first of all, thank you for your kind words about the show. And it, it, it's interesting as I've gone through, um, these calls, how many new listeners that I've missed that I've picked up by not doing these shows. So while my reasoning behind not doing them is probably pretty damn solid, um, I'm going to say that it, I'm, I'm sorry that I missed you uh, and several other people, uh, at least one other, I think, that will be heard today. And thank you for giving the show an opportunity. Uh, and I do agree that during this particular period of time, it is a uniquely uh, good fit and a great time for us to be growing our audience. Uh, for those that may be listening to today, we've been doing this over 12 years. And uh, this show started out all the way back in 2008 and started out in my car. And I did the show for the first 18 months out of my car. And uh, it's grown into what it is because of, of listeners, uh, some that have been here since the very beginning, some that are showing up right now. So thank you for that. On Goosefoot, what Goosefoot? I don't really know. And I'm not being mean or facetious. or put out, I'm being serious. I don't know. And this is a like teachable moment for when you're asking questions. What are you talking about? 
And I know what Goosefoot is. I grow Goosefoot too. But which one? Goosefoot is a massive, massive, massive plant family. And many members, and maybe this is a good idea for a show, like 10 members of the Goosefoot family that you can use that you didn't know about or something like that. But like the two Goosefoot plants that are most known, and some people consider amaranth a Goosefoot. Now, Goosefoot is basically the common name for uh, the taxonomic uh, family of Chinopodium. And Amaranthus and Chinopodium are equal in the taxonomic you know, kind of hierarchy, so they're separate. They're not in the same group, but they are very, like the next level up taxonomically, they are in the same. And I don't remember if it's family, genus, species, whatever. I don't, I don't remember. I'm not you know, a, a botanist. Uh, but they are distinct from each other. The plant that's very, very similar uh, in look and use to amaranth that is in the Chinopodium, hence Goosefoot Club, uh, is uh, quinoa. Quinoa might be what you're talking about. And when you keep talking about using the seeds extensively, I think that you are. The other plant that plenty of people in America grow and or forage that is a goosefoot is uh, commonly called lamb's quarters. And you can use the seed in lamb's quarters. It's just really small, but it's very high in protein and nutrient. And so if you are talking about lamb's quarters or if you want to broaden your goosefoot world to the world of lamb's quarter, I would recommend that you... You know, let some of it go to seed, and you harvest the seed when it turns black. And the easiest way to harvest the seed is probably similar to what you're doing with quinoa, assuming that's what you're doing, is you basically get a five-gallon bucket, cut the big seed heads off of it, and just start rubbing your hands through it. And then you're going to want to winnow it because there's going to be a lot of chaff and pollen and stuff like that along with it. And so the easiest way to do this on a, a lightly breezy day Take that bucket and just hold it up above the bucket a couple feet and just slowly let it filter back through your hands and keep doing that. And it doesn't have to be perfect because none of, it's not like wheat where any of that stuff that gets in there can be a real problem. Like you could just use it with all the chaff and it would be okay. It's just much more useful to, to get a lot of it out of there. And then with lamb's quarter seed, one of the things that you can do to make use of that as a protein of the nutty flavor of all the great things about it is mixing it with other doughs that you make bread out of. I'm not a bread guy anymore, but if you are, I'm not going to stand in the way of you eating bread. So that would be along the lines of, you know, you're making a, a small loaf of bread, maybe throwing two tablespoons of lamb's quarter seed and mixing it in. It gives it a wonderful nutty taste and a huge, I mean, compared to not doing it, massive protein kick. If you're a fan of Bannock, which is basically, I, I, we always used to call it, when I was a kid, we used to call it hobo bread. But it's, it's basically a dough that you mix up, and you kind of like wrap it around a stick and cook it over a fire. It's fantastic in that. Uh, another concept would be pan bread. is another kind of hobo food. Um, it's, it's really good in. As far as other uses for it, I mean, using it as a green, using it dehyd the greens dehydrated and mixed into things, One of one of uh, the show listeners who I met at a uh, event one time, she was uh, killing it uh, with a, a booth at a farmer's market, and she was marketing every single thing in her booth had at least one ingredient that was grown in her backyard. 
Now, she didn't have a big yard, a big farm or whatever, so there's no way she could have like 100%. But at least one ingredient did. And one of the things she made was tortillas, and she made that with dehydrated amaranth leaf, amaranth leaf in it. And that was, again, big protein kick. Amaranth and quinoa leaf both have significant amounts of protein and nutrient, far more than most other green plants. Well, you could do that with a quinoa. You could do that with lamb's quarter. Lamb's quarter is fantastic, as you know, as a green. But like, what do we do with that green? One of the really great innovative ways to use that green is in an omelet. So like, I, I will do like thinly sliced oyster mushrooms and lamb's quarter and either spring onion, green onion, or onion chives in an omelet. And that is unbelievably delicious. And then what you can do to even bounce that a little bit more is a little pinch of those seeds. Now, I wouldn't use quinoa that way. If you're, using, if you're asking about quinoa, then I think you already know that there's a process to cooking quinoa. Now, would cooked quinoa be good in an omelet? I, I, I really don't know. It would seem that quinoa cooked could stand in for rice in a sausage that was like or similar to in some way boudin. That would be an interesting thing that you could do, again, if you're talking about quinoa, because I don't know what you mean by goosefoot. Another plant in this family is called huazantle. And if I don't remember to put a link in the show notes to learn more about it, and you can't spell huazantle, and as many times as I've typed it out, I still can't remember. It's one of those words that just won't go in my head, uh, probably because it's like Mesoamerican Indian <laughs> word, so it doesn't match Spanish or Latin or English or German, which are the four languages I have some idea what I'm talking about with, right? So um, I can never re remember to spell it. I can remember to say it right, though. It's Huazantle. And uh, it's if you Google Central American Lamb's Quarters, you'll find it. You might have to scroll through a couple of results, but you'll see, and you'll be like, that weird word must be Huazantle. And this is a variety of Lamb's Quarters, basically, in the Goosefoot family, that has unique seed heads. And instead of having to wait till they fully mature and harvesting the hard seed, when the seeds are, heads are young and tender, you cut them off the plant and you use them kind of like broccoli or asparagus. They can be steamed, they can be sautéed, they can be battered and fried, which is very traditional. Um, that would be another plant that you could check out. But if you want to follow up with me with exactly what you mean, that would be cool. And in the future, if you guys call in and you are talking about something like this, try to be specific without being so broad in general, unless broad in general makes sense. And here, it's not a problem. I just, I'm not sure. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm missing it. Maybe you're using a goosefoot variety I didn't mention today. If so, I'd very much like to know what it is. So please follow up with me. Um, and I'm going to say, if you're following up on a phone conversation that you hear here, The best thing to do is email it, jack at the survivalpodcast.com, TSPC in the subject line. Let's take another one, this one on UBI, government controls, and vaccinations. Hi, Jack. Matt calling in about mandatory vaccines. I was reading an article about Australia where the prime minister had implemented a few years ago a no jab, no pay policy where if parents didn't get their kids vaccinated, they weren't eligible for government benefits. And that brought to mind your statement about the downsides of UBI, where 
if you don't comply with certain government regulations, you weren't going to get your UBI. And I thought, well, that's interesting because here Australia is saying a few years ago, basically, if your kids don't get a vaccine, you don't get your government bennies. And it's not going to be too long before they say, well, if you don't get a vaccine, you're not giving your government bennies. So messed up, but I thought you'd like to hear about it. All right. Thanks. Bye. So let's let's separate the United States anyway into two worlds. And I think what you're going to see in many of these you know, socialist utopia countries is how bad government control at this level really is compared to a republic in the sense that it's meant in the United States. Because you can have a republic that is nothing like the United States Republic. There's over a hundred nations in the world that are constitutional republics. A hundred. The question within a republic to how valid the form of government is isn't, we're not a democracy, we're a republic, because we are, again, a constitutional republic in the form of a representative democracy or a representative democracy in the form of a constitutional republic. Take your pick, but we're both. We are a democracy. I know we're not a pure democracy, neither is Australia. It's, it's, it's a, that's a fallacy like the one we'll talk about in the end segment today, so we'll leave it alone. Um, but one thing we have in this country, a lot of these calls for the federal government to mandate this, and mandate, they don't have the constitutional authority. And I know you're going to say, but Jack, they do a lot of things they don't yet. I, I know, I know, but it's many times to, to get it to work, it has to do something that's actually difficult to get done. The, the the president can't issue an executive order requiring masks, for instance, or requiring vaccinations. If he did, it wouldn't stand up to the first court challenge. And politicians are stupid, but they're also smart, and they generally don't do things that will not hold up at all. There's a huge amount of autonomy, and different states have different restrictions within their state constitutions. And in some states, a governor can get away with that, and in some states, a governor can't. Or a governor can pull some shit like Greg Abbott did here in Texas, which is, well, I know I can't mandate masks, but I can do a mandate on businesses to require them in the name of public health. And I can find the business, and that's what was done here. And that's the blueprint we need to look at in the United States. And if we had, you know, we had never had a pandemic in modern times like this, So there was no blueprint to look at as to what would happen. But the reason you don't see the onerous behavior at the national level in the United States that you do in Germany or Australia or the UK is our federal government does not have the power to do it. And it's because the states do, to some degree, depending on their own constitutions and the overriding federal constitution. Okay? And you can't have it both ways. If the state has a power, I mean, little s state, you know, New York, Florida, Georgia, then the federal government tends to not be able to override that power successfully most of the time, right? I will I'll leave you that out because I know you're going to want to argue technicalities and bullshit instead of, like, the fundamental reality of what's going on here. And it's a very small segment of you guys, but I know who you are. So exactly what it would look like, there was no way to really know. Because we didn't dealt with it since like 1918, and the government today and the government in 1918 are drastically different governments in this country. But when it comes to vaccines, we have a very clear blueprint 
for when government feels a vaccination is necessary for the health and safety and welfare of the American people as to how they quote-unquote mandate it. And right now, we don't have UBI. So what they tend to do is they mandate it through administrative bullshit at varying levels. They'll say, for your child to attend school, they have to be vaccinated. There's loopholes and ways to get out of it. They don't care that you get out of it. They care that the vast majority comply. They're shooting for a number of 70% compliance. Because they trust the scientists and trust the expert, and they believe if they hit that number, they're good. So as long as the opposition doesn't pull below that number, we're good. Mostly. So another way that they've, you know, mandated, if you want to call it that, a huge number of people is through employment requirements. And the government will either strong arm or soft arm any given employment sector. And many times the employment sectors themselves only need a suggestion. They don't even need a strong or soft arm uh, bend. So schools would be one example. Well, not only do your children have to get vaccinated, but pretty much the school districts mandate all employees. You want to be employed here, you got to get a vaccination. Healthcare workers, almost, almost, you know, the, the lion's share, as I say, almost the supermajority must be vaccinated in order to have their jobs. Even little bitty doctor's offices with two nurses and one MA and one physician. That doctor that runs that practice will require his staff to be vaccinated. Most of the time. Not all the time, but most of the time. So you've got that, and that's a precedent. And, and like, there's all types of state employment that they'll do that. You know, a mechanic that works on the buses for the city, they'll say he has to be vaccinated, he can't have a job. At that point, you have millions upon millions upon millions of people that are fundamentally mandated. 55 million school children, right? And there's 330 million people in the country, and that's just the kids. Then you have a certain amount of people that will just go along and get along. So that's all the ways that they'll do it now, and then we'll add to it. Insurance companies will say, we're not paying for anything that could be possibly maybe related to COVID if you don't get a COVID vaccine. Oh, and your rates are going to be higher if you don't get a COVID vaccine. And if they're told you, well, you by the courts, okay, you can't give people a higher rate because they're not vaccinated against COVID. And that could happen. The insurance companies will say, fine, we'll raise everybody's rates and we'll offer a discount. And then that will legally pass under the precedent that right now, if you don't smoke, you pay less for your health insurance or your life insurance. Life insurance companies may say, if you die of COVID and you don't get a COVID vaccine, and you could have, we're not going to cover your death. Now, I don't know if you can do that with any existing policies, but they could start writing policies that way. Very difficult to tell them that they can't, as long as it's disclosed prior to purchase of the policy. And yes, long, long time ago, for a very brief period of time, I used to sell life insurance. It was in license to do so, and I, I can't see where that wouldn't pass. So there's all these different ways that they can mandate without kicking your door in or making you do it. Um, travel, federally, would be almost impossible to tell somebody you can't travel without a vaccine in our country. There's nothing that stops Mexico from saying, if, you know, you have to have the COVID stamp on your passport to get into Mexico. Nothing in the world stops Mexico from doing that. Every nation has a right to control who comes into their nation from other nations. I don't know a single nation that's prohibited themselves that power. So Germany, the EU, whole, e, whole of the EU, 
Australia, what all, so if you want to travel internationally, there's always the potential that an international government would require it to allow you in. States. Can New York say you can't come to New York without a vaccine? They can. Will it hold up? I doubt it, but it could for a time while it works its way through the court system. I think that's such a slam dunk in our society today that it would be virtually impossible for it to remain in force, but it could be done. Now, let's flip it. The second the government begins to pay people money regularly, it has the ultimate control mechanism. If you think that anybody in your government is pro-UBI because they want to help people, you should go get an IQ test. And if you have an IQ over 85 and you still believe that, then you should sue the person who gave you the IQ test because their IQ test is, is misleading, to say the least. Like, if you take any logical look at this, the only reason government would want to pay everybody every month is to control behavior. The only reason. There is no other reason. And any other reason you can come up with pales in comparison, even if they did mean it when they said it. Because everything that the government does is designed to control behavior. It really is. Every, every revenue stream that they put in place is designed to control behavior, and then the revenue is the byproduct that they use to additionally control behavior. Here would be an example. Sin taxes. We don't want you to smoke, so we'll put a great big tax on cigarettes. That, I mean, that's the stated reason for it, that we think it's a bad thing for you to do. It's unhealthy for you. You really shouldn't do it, so we're going to put a cigarette tax in place, and then that will reduce the number of people to smoke. But then they have no problem with the amount of revenue that comes in and spending it to equally control behavior. And then again, looking at the template of history, if you give a government a power, it will use it, abuse it, and do so incompetently and with malice. So imagine the power you have once you have a society on a UBI. We will just turn you off. Now, if we add to it, I don't want to get too conspiratorial here, but this is just logical evaluation. If we add to it, what effectively will be called and act like a national cryptocurrency, or it's being called FedCoin. So what it, what it will actually be is, is the antithesis of a true cryptocurrency, but it, it will have the power of a cryptocurrency, but it will be centralized and controlled by a central authority. And once you do that, and so the way you get that done is you say, okay, and this is what, this is what the Federal Reserve is already, this is all out there, that they say, you know, well, we need to get money to people, and we need to do it quickly then we need to have this cryptocurrency, or this digital currency is what they'll call it, so we can immediately just deposit money in your account. Now, anybody that can deposit money in your account, especially when you're talking inside the banking system, can do what? Remove money from your account. And the federal government already has the authority to remove money from your account because they have the IRS. And the Federal Reserve, while a private entity, is a surrogate for the federal government. So you're going to get to a point where not only can they put money in, they can take money out. And let's say that everything works perfectly and court ABCD, kangaroo XYZ, says you can't be taking away their money unless you have just cause for doing so, like they're dealing dope or something like that. And that means you can't take away their money because they didn't get your shot. Well, would that apply to money that came from the government in the first place in the form of UBI when they passed a law that said you're not entitled to your UBI if you don't get your shot? 
So let's say you're going down the road and you've already got one of your shots and it made a third ear grow out of your nipple or something like that. And uh, you decide, I don't want these anymore. So next time around, I'm not going to get it. And screw them, they can keep their UBI. But you've already received 24 months worth of UBI or 24 years, depending on what point in history we're at. Can they then say, you have forfeited thy right to thy public money, not just in the future, but in the past. Yes, they can. Same way they do retroactive tax increases. And they have done that, Bill Clinton. The control that they will have, we're going to let this go today. But as you hear more about this, you need to understand that having assets outside of the sphere of control and influence and access of your government will become more important every single day forward into the future, period. I'm telling you right now, this is in a one-way move. It will not go away. It will not go backwards. And the vaccine is just one example. They will literally, within a half a generation, be able to control almost every aspect of behavior of society if they have a UBI. Through both the, the shutting off and the retroactive removal. They'll pass a new, uh, a new control. You must do XYZ. You must walk down the street with petroleum jelly on thy right index finger inserted into thy anus, whistling Dixie. And if thy does not do it, they shall forfeit all of thy UBI for thy year, and we pass this in December. So that's a year of UBI will go away and no more future UBI. And you will see an awful lot of people with their finger up their ass walking down the street whistling Dixie. That's how much control. Because right now, I'm not going to go into it today, but if you want to see something stupid, look at the, look at the restrictions Gavin Newsom has said apply to you if you're having Thanksgiving dinner in California. And I think most people will say, I'm not doing this, and there's nothing you can do about it. I don't think anybody will do anything about it. But it's almost gotten to the point of, like, when you were a kid and you play Simon Says, and the teacher starts just, like, going, what can I actually get them to do? And that's with COVID. With, in many instances, no real ability to control you. And people do it anyway. Out of fear and a need to comply and to be a sheep. Wait till they can shut your money off, take it away, punish you with a negative interest rate against your account, etc. Telling you, man, it is the biggest loss of freedom that we have ever had at risk in society today. And the same technology enables more freedom and autonomy than has ever existed in society if you choose to start thinking that way and acting that way now. Let's take another one. Hey, my name is Baraj Gill, and I just finished watching your uh, YouTube videos. I binge-watched, actually, and I love what you're saying. I've been doing... I was an Amazon seller for a long time. I totally understand what you're saying about shadow banning and Facebook and all of that. I'm kind of have been wanting to start my own spirituality like channel. I do have one on YouTube called foul mouth spiritualist, but um, I resonate. There's something about you that's raw and real that I actually really resonate with. So just wanted to let you know, um, thank you for all the information. I, you have changed my mind on a few things. Um, I am thinking instead of using Patreon, that's actually how I found your video. You came up in, uh, for my recommended uh, videos. Um, instead of doing Patreon, I am thinking I have a WordPress site. I'm thinking maybe I'll look at the software that you mentioned, that um, A-Member Pro, and 
other stuff just to have more control. Cause I know when I worked with Amazon, it was absolutely awful. Even though I sold organic products, handmade products, I live in Canada and I only sold on Amazon Canada. It was so hard. They controlled everything that I could do. They would put bans on if we, cause we used, um, all natural, if we used hemp oil and it was just such an awful experience, even with Facebook and my Instagram has been shadow banned as well. Um, anyways, I just really resonated with it. If I, I don't know where this voice message is going to go to, but I wish I had an email or something just to kind of go into this a little bit more because I understand what you're saying, but I'm still nervous because I haven't done any of like the website. And I know I have used Stripe before, but I've just been kind of, I don't want to say a failure because every business is a success because you learn so much, but just kind of hard. It's, 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 it's disheartening when you put so much work into it and then you just feel like you're kicked down to the ground every single time. So I just wanted to kind of like maybe have a conversation or even via email. I know this is your time, but just to ask more about what it's like to just start your own platform. Like it must be powerful. That's all. Thank you so much. Bye. Okay, what I, what I really like about this call, other than the tone uh, here, because thank you for the kind words and, and, and for your uh, your willingness to really dig into my content, um, is the acknowledgement that, that, that Amazon is as much of a platform as something like YouTube is. I don't know if she meant to do that directly, but that's what you're saying. Like YouTube and Amazon are both platforms. And they're, they're, they're really need to be looked at that way because then you understand what deplatforming means to you. Or the same type of situation with how much crap will you tolerate from a platform when you have enough vested in it that a significant proportion of your income is coming from it. Do you understand that? I guarantee you there are YouTubers right now that if they had seen the behavior that YouTube is committing 10 years ago, would have said, YouTube can shove their head up their own ass, I'm going to go do something else somewhere else. Or I will use them, but I will not let them get their hooks in me. But if, you've, if, you, if you remember YouTube from 10 years ago, a lot of the, the behavior that's going on there today didn't happen. Even five years ago didn't happen. So if a person spends four or five years of their life building up an Amazon seller's business or building up a YouTube platform-based business, just like UBI from the government, how much will they tolerate? And the answer in general, the, the bigger that number gets and the larger the percentage of that person's income it represents, all of it, all of it. I sell as an Amazon associate, an affiliate, right? So I make a commission on every Amazon item people buy through websites and pages that I run selling Amazon on it. Amazon has cut the commission on their last commission cut so low that if I was starting a business today, I wouldn't even touch it. I wouldn't even bother. I have enough invested in it, and I have enough of the work already done, and I've made enough money on it in the past that there would be it would be stupid for me to turn that faucet off. Now, I want to be clear. This isn't about an anger issue here. 
Right? This isn't like, so Facebook, screw those guys, I'm going home. Right? That's, that's an anger issue. And it's, it's an ethics issue. Mathematically, mathematically, if Amazon does this again, it will mathematically make sense for me to put my effort somewhere else, even with you know the sunken cost fallacy component attached to it. It will be like it's not so if they if they go from a three percent base commission to two, that's where I have to start going. I don't you know maybe I just leave all the reviews up and what comes like I do with AdSense. I have websites you've never seen, you probably never will that are fifteen years old that have AdSense on them. And you know, once once in a while, I pull them up and go, okay, the cost to maintain this to me is, and the revenue from it is, it's worth leaving there. It's free money. You know, I mean, I don't touch it, I don't look at it, whatever. It's free money, and that that would be where I would go next. And you got got to understand it. That's how all these platforms can end up for you. So, what I hear in this call that concerns me really seems to be a belief that, that doing things the way I teach is harder than it is. Like building your own platform must be really powerful and amazing. It's actually really, really simple. You have a WordPress blog, you're there. With you know plugins like WooCommerce, you can sell your products directly. Now, let me say something about the herbal industry, specifically any product that goes inside the human body. It does not make all the problems with the Food and Drug Administration go away. And it is an incredibly restrictive and regulated market. And it is a difficult market to be in, but it can be very, very lucrative. So that's too complicated to get in today. But with anything else that you do, like there is no way in the world I would do Patreon. Patreon could call me up on the phone and say, Jack, tell you what, we will give you $2,500 a month just to set your Patreon back up. Because I did do it for a while to see, like, what's it all about? Does it work? Is it worth it? My answer was, no, it's not. They also started deplatforming people for people for things that they did 10 years ago. So that was like, okay, that's a scumbag thing on top of a practicality thing. But no, you, I mean, okay, if Patreon offered me a million dollars and said I'm allowed to tell you that the only reason I'm endorsing them is because they gave me a million dollars, I have a price. I would do that, right? But like from a practical standpoint, any reasonable amount of money, they couldn't pay me to use their service or specifically to recommend it. Why? You can look up a member pro, which is the software I use, and there's a bunch of other membership software suites for WordPress. The newer ones, including a member's latest stuff that comes with WordPress plugins, you don't even have to be that smart or that technologically astute to use. I have like a manual install one. It's too complicated to convert over inside of WordPress now because it's so old, right? I have the latest version of it, but it's still it's like it's outside in its own thing. That's why it looks kind of funky. Um, today, you, there, there's software that you can basically pay nine dollars a month for, and it just runs on your WordPress blog. And once you do that, it isn't about how powerful it is. It's about the fact that your business is direct. What I'm going to do this week, if you are a member of the MSB with an expired account, you can expect to get an email this week offering you a special sales price to come back. Why can I do that? Why can I do that? 
because I have all of my members in there. And I'm sure I'll get one or two emails. You're such an asshole. You're against mass. That's why I'll never listen to you again. Delete my account. Okay, delete. Like, like I care, right? And, and that's the other power, right? So like if somebody complains to me about what I do with my platform, I don't care. Piss off. Go somewhere else. If somebody starts complaining to YouTube about you and you get enough complaints, they can decide you're not, you're not worth the problems. And let's say you're on YouTube and you have this huge membership because now, now you don't need Patreon. YouTube has its own membership program for their producers. So you have all these people in there and all of a sudden one day you realize that over the years lots of them left, but they probably still watch you. How do you get them back? Do a video and say, hey, come back. They may never see that video. YouTube decides who sees what when. They just might not feel like a lot. But what if you could send them all an email? Hey, come on back. I'll make you a discount. Oh, that's right. You can't do a discount because you're in the YouTube platform. See how that works? All Patreon is is a membership platform made to scale, and they take a piece for doing it. Like You can do all of this stuff yourself, and you should. And if you're going to sell a product, sell it on your own website. If you're going to sell a product on Amazon... Also sell it on your own website. Unless you're only going to do FBA, which is fulfilled by Amazon. If you're going to ship product, you should sell it direct and on other platforms. And you should, if you could sell it on Amazon and Etsy and eBay, great. Or wherever else, great. You can even sell on Walmart as an independent vendor now, whether you knew that or not. Great. Still sell it direct, still sell it yourself, and do everything you can that if you have a product shipped through a third party, like an FBA, to get that customer to engage with you directly. Register your product, register for a free thing, blah, 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 blah. Tell your story on our website, whatever. And develop your database is your money. Having been through several corporate mergers when I was in the corporate world, I can tell you right now, when company A buys company B, they're buying their customers. That's what they're really buying. They're buying their customers. I was in a cabling company that was that, that bought another cabling company. The people we bought out, they thought, oh, they bought us. I don't give a shit about you. We have this proprietary way we label cables. No one gives a shit. We bought your customer base. We bought your database. We're going to keep 10% of you. We're going to say everybody's going to have a job by the end of the year, and by the end of the year, 90% of you are going to be gone. We'll hire people while we fire your old people. We're going to cull through and find your best, brightest, and most compliant to our way of life. And we're going to get rid of everybody else. We didn't buy you. We didn't buy your inventory. We didn't buy your, your stockpile of Jackson Cable. We didn't buy your computers. We didn't buy your cubicles. We didn't buy your trucks. I mean, that was factored into the price to a degree, but what, the only reason we bought you is because we just acquired 50% more business next year automatically, and we, we, we factored in what we can do with that business. That's why we bought you. I was in a company where I was on the acquisition, the other side of the acquisition. We were a uh, phone service provider, and the company that bought us, they bought our customer base. They also bought it to rape it and corporate rate it into the ground. They tried to keep me around for it, and I literally told them to F off, full word, to their faces when I left, just to be clear. Um, but, yeah, that was another example. They did not buy a marketing department that was selling a product 
very effectively that would have been like selling black and white TVs today. We were selling local phone service in the early to mid 2000s. Like if you could do, and we did, we sold the ass out of it like crazy. We're the only popular, uh, profitable CLEC in business at the time. They didn't buy us for that reason. They didn't buy our customer service department that they immediately outsourced to, to, to a company that did it for half the price in like Des Moines, Iowa. No, they bought the customer base. Now, what the, the reason I hammer that and the reason I tell you that is when you build a business, if you don't have a customer base that you can talk to, touch, feel, embrace, market directly to, you don't have a business. You don't have a business. You have a side hustle. You have a contract form of income. According to the IRS, you might have the tax advantages of a business. But you don't really have a business. You have access to a piece of somebody else's. And that is night and day. And really think about it as you build and construct your revenue streams. Again, I'm not saying not to use these uh, other income streams. But they need to be seen as either tertiary, like they're like additional incomes, or they are funnels that move people into your into your direct relationship. So if you can't move people to a direct relationship, then you need to be doing other things to get direct relationships. And you can start by, even if you're selling mostly on these third-party platforms, have your own website, ways that people can reach you online, sell, learn more about you, your own social media presence, etc. Let's take another one. This one on freeze-dried versus dehydrated food. Hey, Jack. Uh, this is Corey Smith, a long-time listener. I'm just wondering with um, different options for food storage, if you've done any investigation or had any experience with freeze-dryers versus standard dehydrators, air, air dehydrators. A buddy of mine has a, uh, has a uh, freeze-dryer and swears by it. However... He's the only one I know that has it, and wondering if what your thoughts are on that, if you've ever covered anything for it. Um, again, thanks for everything, for the show, and uh, hope to hear from it. Uh, thanks a lot. So it occurs to me that since I waited so long to do this show, I tried to put seven calls in it. I usually do about five, so it's going to be a longer show, and I had some long segments. So I'll try to do this one quick because I can, because I have covered it before, and I have looked into the numbers on it. Let's start out with the quality of the food storage methodology. Freeze-drying food is the best food storage method for storing food without refrigeration that exists. It is also the most expensive method to preserve food that exists. There is no, there is no way you can preserve food um, that will cost you more money than freeze-drying. So from a quality standpoint, it's there. Home freeze-drying equipment is energy-intensive, takes significant periods of time, and is not the most practical thing you can do. I didn't say it's not practical at all. The one person who's been able to make a reasonable claim to me that he's gotten an ROI on his freeze-dryer is a dude named Jake from our audience, who, number one, paid about half price for it because he bought it used, and number two, has produced things he can sell with it for far more than they actually cost him to produce, which I won't even get into. So he's created a bit, because it's not freeze-dried pineapples, all right? Um, it really, it, it's it's some more creative ways to, to use a, a freeze-dryer. Conversely, dehydrators 
whether we're talking about a $200 Excalibur like we recently had on sale, pay for themselves very quickly. And you can build a dehydrator out of like scrap lumber and scrap glass and some screen material for almost nothing and use the sun to dehydrate, which is how man has used this technology for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years. Many items in the right climate, you don't even need a dehydrator. You just need to put them out in the sun in a way where air can flow around them. And it does a good job on many things, and a not-so-great job on some others. And some things need to be blanched before they're dehydrated, and that'll have a great deal of impact, and I, I can't go into that. But economically, dehydrating makes sense for home food storage. The only way I see freeze-drying making sense is people that have some huge supply of something that's a high-value product freeze-dried. And even then, I think it makes a lot more sense if it's done in kind of a co-op type of arrangement where like two or three families get together and buy one together. And then it either lives at one place for two weeks and another place for two weeks and kind of rotates around and people schedule that way. Or everybody's close enough that it can kind of like live in somebody's place and then everybody can just go there and use it. You have like an online Google calendar where you schedule your time or something. One person buying a freeze dryer and using it to me, economically, doesn't make any sense. And if you don't agree with me, go look at, like, one size up from the smallest, which doesn't do very much, the smallest one. And then just go look at how much freeze-dried food you could buy for that price. And then realize, unless you have a massive supply of food to freeze-dry that you're somehow producing yourself, the underlying investment in the food isn't free. Like, beef at the store costs money. And I think you'll, you'll really quickly see that I just don't think the economics drive this decision in the right direction. And the only people I've heard defend the economics are the people who bought one. And that, here's the quick analogy to that. When I was a kid, there was a lot of stuff hitting the market from the, the Vietnam surplus market. So all the stuff from the Vietnam-era Army, Navy, Marine Corps, and all started hitting the surplus market. And one of the things that came out was Mickey Mouse boots. Now, these were boots that you could blow air up into, and they made you look like a moron, but the theory was you had this air pocket around your feet. I think it was actually more of a Korean War uh, surplus item than a Vietnam War surplus item, but there are parts of Vietnam that get cold. And uh, all the veterans said they were shit. And not, don't ever buy those stupid effing things, right? And the only people that would say, oh, they work really great, are the people that had them. And I, I would ask my, like, my grandfather, well, why does he say they work if they don't work? Because he was a dumbass and he bought them, that's why. There you go. My grandfather's words, not mine. Let's go on to the next one here. Uh, this one is a question on grow rooms. Hey, Jack. It's Jason in Oklahoma. I have a 16 by 24 outbuilding. My wife wants to turn into a she shed. But uh, until then, uh, we were talking about maybe turning into some sort of like a grow room or something. It can have power and or power and water ran to it relatively easy. Uh, it's fully shaded, 24/7, 365. And I was wondering what your thoughts were. Well, my thoughts are as follows: it, it's a 15 by 20 space. That's pretty big, right? I mean, that, that's a pretty big space, 300 square feet, and. Um, Really turning it into a grow room where we're actually going to think about it from a 
standpoint of making modifications to the building, lighting, ventilation, etc., in-wall plumbing or something, you know, um, could be quite expensive for something that's temporary. So I don't know that it makes a huge amount of sense since you're planning on turning it into a she-shed and I say, good for you, man. Yeah, I guess you have a great wife, you know, um, instead of turning it into a man cave. Maybe you already have a man cave in the basement and it's only fair that she gets the she-shed or something like that. Um, so my, my concern there is don't put too much money into it. My other concern is what do you mean? By grow room. Do you want to grow enough food for yourself? Do you want to make money? What have you? Because I think you really need to look hard into what you would be doing. You know, I think you're looking at some form of hydroponics in that situation. Uh, this most logically lends itself to microgreens. So let's talk about that. If we're going to grow microgreens for ourselves, one, you know, two by four foot, you know, baker's rack, running three shelves of grow trays can grow more food than you will ever, ever use if you're growing the kind of food that makes sense to grow in that type of environment. People ask me a lot of times about like growing peppers or cucumbers or tomatoes or something like that hydroponically inside, and my response is, you can, but I won't. It doesn't make sense. So when you start growing what makes sense, which is quick-turn greens, you're either turning microgreens in 9 to 20 days or you're turning baby to, you know, halfway grown to adult uh, salad greens in 25 to 35, 40 days, then you end up very quickly exceeding the capacity of a family to use it all. So then you end up with, well, maybe the next thing to do then is to start selling some of it. So if you now we're getting into a vesting, right? So if we turn that, that into a grow room and we start selling to restaurants and direct to the public and stuff and we start making a profit, goodbye she shed, right? Unless we're going to relocate it to a new space. So I, I really don't know. I think this is one of those ones where I would need some more clarification on what do you mean by grow room and what are your goals because the other thing I could see this space like this doing really well with like kind of a hydro system, and it may be where my quote-unquote hydroponics farm, understanding that I built that to prove it could be done and to learn hydroponics, I don't need an indoor hydroponics farm with all of the space and systems that I have. Um, that may turn into a plant starting system. Now, when you go into that, you use whatever you use for media, and then you use six packs and 1020 trays, and you can start hundreds of plants per tray, and you're only going to grow them so big before they're too big for that environment before they need to go away and either be sold off or planted. So again, I'm back to, that's a lot of space. So I don't know if this will work for you. But one of the things that you may consider is take a wall and do built-in plant grow shelves with the wall that closes and then as long as the she shed can still be a she shed you basically have like a long closet full of food I don't know whether the she and the she shed would be happy with that or not but that way you could not end up having to take it away and if you build it with the end in mind you, you should be okay and you, you know you could be taking something like Again, you know, about a four foot by two foot footprint. Or if you wanted to go a little bit bigger, you could do an eight foot by two foot footprint with like sliding doors. 
And if you do them kind of like a barn door style or something like that, where she can have pictures and shit on them, and all they do is just kind of slide out of the way and then slide back, you could have all that food production remain there. And, I mean, again, like two foot by eight. Two layers of two foot by eight. And I, I, you could start more plants and grow more food, and then you could have environmental controls with that. But I'm not really sure how you mean it. So if you want to follow up with me by email, we'll maybe take another look at this one. This, now let's go on and let's take someone taking exception to my comments about the homeless problems in California and let's learn about a fancy name for a fallacy you've probably heard of before by another name. Hi, Jack. I'm a longtime listener and a big fan, but I feel obliged to point out a logical fallacy that you are perpetuating on your show. That is that the homeless situation is related to the location, as if the people at the location where the homeless problem exists are the cause of the problem. I'd like to point out that a lot of those disabled veterans migrating from Iowa and Tennessee, Texas, any other place, to San Francisco or places where they don't fry or freeze, uh, are not being created by the socialist utopias that they are ending up in. They're going there simply because they don't die. You don't see a lot of homeless people hanging around Death Valley, and you don't see them up, up in Nome, Alaska, because they die there or they can't live. Blaming it on the location is really not a, contributing to the argument. We need to look at the, the government, the wars, the failed wars that have created the veterans, the drug laws that have created unemployable people with just a, a small possession thing on their record that can't get a job, the criminals that... Uh, the banksters that crashed the real estate thing, uh, the overpriced medical situation that has kicked people off or bankrupted families uh, due to an illness. Uh, these are the real causes, and we need to get onto that and not start blaming the people who are simply failing to do much about it. That's a different issue. But if you want to talk about it honestly, you just can't attribute where they end up with where they came from. Thank you. Bye-bye. This is what is referred to as fallacy ignoratio elenchi, which is basically you have committed a logical fallacy which consists in apparently refuting an opponent while actually disproving something never asserted. I have never said that the reason there are lots of homeless people in California is because of socialist government. I have never said that California is responsible for the existence of the homeless population in California. And in let, let's go to, you are making a valid point. You still are relying on asserted facts that are untrue. So your, your concept here, before we even get into what I'm saying and, and why I'm right, and I don't mean to say that arrogantly, I just am, and you're not arguing against any point I've ever made, because, again, I've never claimed this, But one of the things you're claiming here is that the reason there's so many homeless people in California is they don't die. So they go there because it's the place they can go to where they don't die. So they go there from Iowa or Indiana or Pennsylvania or Montana or whatever because it's warm there. Okay, first of all, we have homeless all over the country. Now, I admit there will be less homeless people 
in Nome, Alaska, because they will not migrate to Nome, Alaska in general. And Nome, Alaska has a smaller population from which to draw a significant portion that will become homeless, because many of the homeless in California didn't migrate there. They were Californians who came on hard luck for whatever problem and became homeless. Some did, some didn't, but many came from the existing millions upon millions of people that are there. Do you want to know how I know this? We have plenty of homeless people in Texas. And we have climates in Texas that are almost identical to climates in California where you have these homeless problems. And there's homeless people there. The state of Florida and the state of California have climates that are almost identical. Why do you both think they're homes to Disney's? Right? They're the two states that have Disney's in the country. Why? The climate. There are plenty of homeless people in Florida. Per capita, there may be as many. Do you know what they're not doing? Do you know what doesn't happen in South Florida? You don't walk down the street, think, I'm going to go into the store, and right in front of the door, between you and going into the store where you want to do business, is a person taking a shit on the stoop of the store. And if somebody did take a shit in Florida, out in the street like that, they would be arrested for public indecency and, and several other things. And if a shop owner in, let's say, Puerto uh, Rusa, uh, Florida took some sort of action to prevent a person from shitting on the street in front of their steps, <clears throat> they wouldn't be arrested and fined for interfering with the homeless place from taking a shit. You also don't walk around Miami and see homeless people laying on the street with needles hanging out of their arms. This is the problem with these states. It's not that homeless people exist. It's that the behavior that they're permitted to have with no repercussions and, and no ability for the people that are being wronged to do anything about it. That is the only thing I have ever said about homeless people in California and homeless people in Washington State, Seattle, where they have the same problems and it gets a hell of a lot colder than it does in L.A., so not only are you wrong in your claim that they only go there for that, you're arguing a point I never made. There are homeless people in New York. And guess what? Before that city was cleaned up largely by the efforts of Rudy Giuliani, a lot of the problems that they have in California today, not quite the same extent, but pretty much they had in New York. And guess what? They're coming back. Now, does New York City have such a wonderful climate that all the homeless people are going there because they cannot die there, as you asserted? No. You don't think there's homeless people in Atlanta, Georgia? You don't think there's homeless people in New Orleans, Louisiana? I used to work at a building. I can't remember the name of the building, but MCI had a terminal on the 19th floor. It was directly across the street from the Superdome. And I used to look down off the rooftop at the homeless people living under the overpass, right down there, so much so that when we were there at night, we were told, do not turn the lights on out on the deck, because sometimes they shoot at the lights to see if they can hit them. So we had a crime problem on top of a homeless problem. We still didn't have people shitting in the streets. Right? Occasionally somebody would take a whiz down at the French Quarter up against the wall, but very quickly get arrested for it. And... Property owners had a right to defend their property. Your argument has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with anything I asserted. Your overriding contention that the actual problems that cause homelessness are largely by governments 
and entities that have done nothing to actually address the problem is mostly true. It's mostly true. There is a significant portion of the homeless population that are not veterans with PTSD, that are simply mentally defective people. There's a much bigger segment of them that it's not that they have bipolar disorder that's unmedicated. They're on drugs. And all of the programs designed to help them, many of which do exist, have one requirement. You can't come in here with your dope or high. And if you want our help, you got to get clean. And they don't want to. That's another. And then there's the people that are just trying to figure out how to get their life back together. And there's not enough programs to help them. None of this has anything to do with Joe at Joe's Deli, who pays ridiculous rent and ridiculous expenses to operate within the city of Los Angeles, with Bill shitting on his front steps and Tommy laying up against the wall to his front stoop with a needle of heroin in his arm and not being able to do anything about it. And if he does try to do anything about it, he gets arrested and he's told to just live with it. So nice try. I appreciate the effort. But you've argued a point that I've never made, and you've even been flawed in the way that you argued it, because, again, there are plenty of homeless people all over the country. And that, you have to ask yourself, then why do they not exhibit these behaviors? Because it's not permitted. Because they're not able to do it without consequences for that behavior. And I know what somebody's going to say, but Jack, you're a libertarian anarchist. You're an egoist. You, you don't think there should be a government. But who arrests Bill for not letting Tom shit on his front porch? That's right, the government. I promise you. I promise you. In a society where people had a right to defend their property, you wouldn't have this problem. And you'd probably have a lot more solutions to the underlying problem of homelessness. Because there are a lot of people that would really like to do something in a big way to help people who are homeless to create more transitional towns with tiny homes and things like that. It's all zoning and ordinance and regulation that prevent it. You go try to solve this problem. And there's ways to do it, but you will find that you will have enough, let's say somebody gets really intent on this, and they come up with enough money and resources that they could help 150 homeless people per rotation. So there's a certain amount of... Because you don't want to permanently... Provide for somebody in some sort of private welfare system. You want to create a transitional situation where people can get their shit together, right? So it, it, we'll get out of the government regulation business for that other side of it here, and we'll get there in a second. But right now, inside there, let's say you have enough money that you could at any one time provide housing, food, clothing, educational services, etc., for 150 people you'll probably be able to actually do it for 50. You'll lose two-thirds of your ability to help because of government regulations, etc. Zoning, what have you. You'd be able to do more with less if they would get out of the way. Now, once you've transitioned them out, there's a huge part of this program problem that exists because they're doing stupid shit like you can't build a house less than X number of square feet. That raises the cost of housing for everybody. We have a shitload of homeless people that have jobs. They live in their cars. Tons, not everybody that's homeless is sitting there with a, with a dope needle. That's why they're not all a problem. And there's a different solution for that group of people. But yeah, 
No. You, you, can't, you can't equate these two things. Every time I talk about this problem, I'm talking about the problem the people's behavior creates, the unabated behavior, the protected behavior. It's not acceptable for any person of any walk of life. Nothing requires Bill to shit on Tom's stairs. He does it because he can. Anyway, again, nice try, but <laughs> that again is known as fallacy ignoratio alenti. You're arguing a point fairly well that I never made. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you guys, if you like to show in the work that we do, one of the ways you can always help support us is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. And no matter what you buy, you will help the survival podcast and the work that we do. Um, today's item of the day is a new one. It's one where I get to do a little bit of educating. I have a really great write-up on this. And since I don't want to go too long on it, you might want to look it up. Um, but it's called U40 Cork Sealer. Now, U40 is a company that makes about six products. Been around for like 35 years. And they make products that allow people to build and maintain fishing rods. So this is cork sealer for the handle on a fishing rod. They don't do anything else. They specialize in the chemistry that makes this process possible, which means they probably do it right. When it comes to their cork sealer, there's a lot of ways to seal cork on a fishing rod handle. And one, and like the cheapest way, and it will work, is uh, polyurethane, right? Varnish, basically. You can paint that on a fishing rod handle, put two coats of it on there, let it dry, and that rod handle will last forever. It will also feel like plastic or glass, and it will lose everything that makes a cork rod handle worth having. It'll look like you didn't take the plastic wrapper off of it when you bought the rod, which kind of is what, it's like a chemical plastic wrapper. So I don't like that. The reason I buy cork rods in the first place, I like the way they look and the way they feel. The other option is you can use um, various other stains and things like that, and to me, none of them leave the cork, feel, and act like cork the way U40 does. It's 10 bucks for two ounces. That sounds like a lot of money, but it's not. You put an incredibly thin coat, one coat on. You don't do two coats because once it's sealed, if you put another coat on, it can't get in. It works that good. I found that you can only do it about once every three years on your rods because it lasts that long. So until it begins to really wear down, you can't really get another coat on. If you don't do this, cork rods will break down over time. Again, read my write-up. I've got a picture of a very new rod uh, that had this problem that I had to take like a nuclear option to fix. I won't get into today. But it, what it revolves around is I've got some old rods, too. I've got some rods from the 70s still look pretty much new. Uh, and I've been using this stuff on them since I got them. I, I bought them used, but I've been using it a long time on them. And the older rods or high-end rods you buy today have cork that's solid cork as it looks like all the way down to the blank. What most of your production rods today are made of is like a press cork. Think of it like press wood. Uh, I can't remember what they call it now, but you know, you buy a cabinet and it's made of pressed wood. It's like cork pressed like that. And then the better looking cork is almost like a veneer on the outside of it. You know, for a rod that's 35, 40 bucks, that's okay. But if you don't seal it, that shit will start to peel off. I'm going to do some videos maybe this week or next week where I show some rods with some damage and where this leads. If you don't do it long enough, entire chunks will fall out of handles the cork will literally crack and fall away. And for 10 bucks, I guarantee you it's enough to seal. I don't care if you own 20 fishing rods and they're all cork. It will seal them all and you'll still have some left over. 
And you should do this when you, unless you're buying a custom-made rod, where you know the guy that made it for you did it for you, when you bring a rod home, you should do this immediately. It'll save you money, it's simple, it's easy, and it works. And again, what I like about U40 is, again, they do one thing, products for fishing rods. You know, they do sealant, uh, they do adhesives, they do cork seal, etc. That's all they do. And two, when you're done with it, it still feels like cork. And if you're thinking, I know what I'll do, I'll use like an oil or something. It doesn't work. I, every wooden-handled tool in my grandpa's shop, we use linseed oil on. I did this one time with a fishing rod. Don't do it. It looks great when you're done and it dries. And as soon as it gets out in the sun, it starts to kind of sweat out and it's gross. You know, like I've, 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 I've done wood-handled tools with uh, like deer tallow. Don't do it. Cork is cork, man. U40 cork seal, 10 bucks for two ounces. And remember, everything at tspaz.com has passed the Jack Spirico inspection test. That means I own it, I bought it, I spent my money on it, and I'd do it again or I wouldn't recommend it to you. With that, let's wrap up with our song of the day today. We have kind of a varied mix today. We're starting off with a Queen song, and that's always great. This song is called Was It All Worth It? And this was an album that Freddie Mercury thought would be his last album. His bandmates did not even really know about his HIV um, diagnosis when they were putting this album together. And this song was really kind of his farewell song, Freddie Mercury's farewell song. And, of course, he did last long enough to do one more album. So on that album, we won't get into it today, but there's a song that everybody thinks of as Freddie's farewell song since it was the last album. That song was really the band's farewell to him. This was his farewell to his fans. Was it all worth it? And he's asking the question, like, basically selling your body, soul, and mind to the gods of rock and roll. All the sacrifices, all the work, all the effort, now that you stand at a point where you know you do not have much of a future. At the time that this was put together, a diagnosis of HIV was an absolute death sentence. It was something you didn't come back from, and it only got worse. And if you listen to this song, by the end of it, it becomes clear in his mind, yes, it was all worth it. Now, I know you're not a rock and roll megastar facing an HIV infection after a life of sex drugs, sex, drugs, rock and roll, and debauchery. But it doesn't mean that you won't ever come to the point where you'll have this question for yourself, was it all worth it? And a lot of times, was it worth it has a lot to do with the results. Making a lot of sacrifices ends up being worth it if you achieve what you had in mind, and if that achievement was worthy of, of, of seeking in the first place, if it actually made you happy. But I challenge you some, some days at least, once in a while, Sit back and ask yourself, if you get to the end of your life, what you're doing right now, when you look back, will it have been worth it? Will it have been worth it? And the other question would be, not so much worth it, but will it have been wasted? There's two ways you can go. You can give too much of yourself to something that's never going to happen, or that even if it does happen, it's not going to matter, or it takes you so far away from the people you love that you end up alone in the end. But the other extreme is, you don't put enough in. You don't work hard enough. 
And instead of the time, was it worth it? Was it wasted? You don't want either one of those questions to come up in, in, in a way that's negative. Spend your dash making things happen. But making things happen that are for the betterment of you and your family and the people that you love your community. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Someday.